Welcome back to Ed here in Apologetics, everyone. As always, brought to you by you with patreon.com slash Today, I'm here once again with Nick Quinn. I'm sure you know who Nick is if you've been following the show at all. He runs the Synergist Podcast, Red Reference Podcast. He's a pretty cool dude. What's up, Nick? Not much, brother. Thanks uh, Thanks for coming, having me on. Yeah, man. I'm really pumped to have you on. We're going to have a conversation where you're talking about the atonement. It's going to be a little bit shorter of a show if you're hanging on live. So we're only going to go for about 40 minutes or so. And if you're listening uh, pre-recorded, obviously, you know the length of the show. But just very briefly, Nick, uh, in case someone doesn't know who you are, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Yeah, I podcast at uh, the two uh, podcasts that you mentioned, the Synergist Podcast and uh, Split Frame of Reference Podcast. Uh, I am an associate pastor, and uh, yeah, those are the two big things. Awesome. And also, um, we're going to be talking about the atonement today. Nick is big into New Testament theology. Uh, you wrote a book, which I'm currently reading, really good book. Uh, oh, so I'm enjoying that. And even though I don't agree with physicalism, but you know, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, but we're going to be talking about the atonement today. Really interesting question that I just thought would be, it'd just be good to have Nick's insight on it. So just very briefly, like what got you interested in the question of the atonement? Well, uh, a lot of things. One was just you read Paul and you have to start thinking about, okay, well, how did Paul view Jesus's death and what was the meaning of that? And, you know, it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's the heart and soul of Pauline theology. That's not the right term, but there's a lot to Paul that, uh, that we kind of need to figure out and all that sort of stuff. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, that's an aspect of it. I mean, uh, that I thought was interesting, but also, uh, how little Jesus seems to say explicitly about the meaning of his death, you know, say the Mark ransom sayings, you know, in Matthew and Mark, uh, and how most of the new Testament is not Jesus saying what he came to do in terms of accomplishing by his, his death, but also the new Testament itself bears witness to a lot of interpretive methods that people try to figure, trying to figure out, you know, what, what is, what is the significance of Jesus's death, you know, and, and kind of, putting ourselves in that conversation is kind of fun. Mm, yeah, it's definitely like a pretty important question. If you ever like read Paul, it's like, oh, there's there's something here. Uh, yeah. So briefly, can you just talk a little bit about like what your views are? Obviously, like we have the words, like I know you talked a little, little bit, um, we were texting or whatever, and you're talking about like you kind of lean towards like Christus Victor and denying penal substitution. We have all these like, like keywords, but can you, can you just like walk through what you believe regarding like the atonement in just like a very broad sense? Yeah, so I think uh, if I'm taking all of the New Testament together uh, and not kind of trying to prioritize what I like versus what all this other stuff, and so I try to put aside uh, kind of the the front the the what's the phrase the the um, emphasis that evangelicalism generally, at least where I find myself in evangelicalism, places on penal substitutionary atonement, which uh, a good summarize of penal substitutionary atonement is um, on the cross that Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And that's kind of, you know, the, the famous song. And it's it, it, there's more nuance to it than that, but that's what most people at least have a kind of a picture in their mind. Jesus's death assuaged or satisfied or dealt with God's wrath uh, in some sense. Uh, and that, of course, is teased out. But what I, I think is happening in the New Testament are two things. One requires a little bit more of a, a framework to kind of in order to explain. First is the framework is that there the New Testament assumes a supernatural worldview. 
And by that, I'm, it feels dumb to say, but it, it, by that, I mean, there are principalities, powers, demons, angels, all those sorts of things. And they are agents in God's cosmos. There, there's mm-hmm. these things that are separate from God that are acting and doing stuff. And that me, and that gives us kind of a, a lens by which we view uh, the death of Christ, because as Matthew and Mark point out, the son of man or the human one, uh, which I take to be Jesus, came to give his life as a ransom or, or lutron or payment or price of manumission. Uh, for the sake of many, or for, for many, and Paul talks about that in First Timothy, where you know the um, uh, Jesus came uh, to give his life as a as a ransom for all, or anti-lutron, you know, it's a similar word. And so, what it seems to suggest, so taking that first concept, the the supernatural worldview, and that we would say the world that is hostile to God, whether agents, principalities, humans, all those sorts of things, um, they're involved in this atonement scheme too. And the problem I see with a lot of atonement theology is they don't include, we would say, the, the they, they like to include the sinful people in Christ, right? You know, kind of the, you know, the Christ died for me kind of stuff. And while that's true, it's very minimal, or I would say it's, it's much less than what we think, because what atonement theology also tries to do is deal with the principalities and powers and evil in the world, active agents that are doing horrific things. And that's why we go to the son of man or the, the, the ransom sayings in Mark and Matthew, you know, for the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's not about appeasing God or, or even, even the victory of God per se. Uh, it's about Jesus giving his life as a price of payment to set people free. So unless we assume that God is keeping all of humanity enslaved and Jesus is purchasing people back from God for God, you can see how the logic kind of breaks down there. You know, it just it, it doesn't make sense. And so what I tend to think is the death of Je- the atoning death of Jesus is vicarious insofar it is for others. Um, you could even say it's substitutionary. Uh, in some sense, although I, I'm kind of squi- I don't like the, the word because it implies when you say substitutionary, people automatically think penal substitution. I'm like, no, mm-hmm. the, you have substitutionary atonement, they have penal substitutionary atonement. You know, you kind of need to make a, a distinction there, but that's a, a very fine point. Uh, but I also believe that it was for and to put a, a, a good way of describing it is the atonement. And the problem is, too, is people think very mechanistically about atonement. Atonement is almost a scientific method. And nowhere in the New Testament is that even remotely like true, because you'll have Paul say something or, you know, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom. We'll just stay, stay with the ransom statements. Uh, it doesn't tell us how it works. Just doesn't explain it. There's no mechanics to it. And that's where it kind of Anselm and kind of the Protestant Reformation. We we think mechanically. We're thinking, OK, how does this work? They did a, you know, whereas if we take kind of C.S. Lewis's model or at least the way he frames things, you almost would call it deep magic. There's a deeper magic to it that defies the human capacity to fully explain it not that and it's not to say you can't understand it but it is to say if you think mechanistically you're going to be very disappointed with what the new testament gives you and so i tend to think jesus's death is a ransom is to purchase back people from enslavement sin and death and i think paul echoes that with a lot of his language about jesus becoming a curse for us or even perhaps because of us uh you know cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree in galatians 3 and Christ, or rather, God, and uh, God presents Jesus as the mercy seat, right? In Romans three, you know, uh, uh, people like to tra- translate it as propitiation or expiation. It's a terrible translation. No, it's it's about it's basically Paul talking about Jesus is placed at the uh, mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, right? Where you have Jesus is the place where mercy is found, and so Jesus is not the sacrificial victim. God's not presenting a sacrificial victim for us. That's something humanity does if we read Leviticus and all those sorts of texts. Mm -hmm. And so what I try to say is 
in Christ, God was reconciling all things back to God's self, bringing everything back and recapitulating everything, bringing everything back to its original intended purpose, shalom and peace with God. And how that happens is the death Jesus died is for the sake of all of humankind. And I'm not a Calvinist, so I believe every single person, it, Christ died for every single person uh, who's ever lived and will live. Uh, and that includes the notion of emancipation, deliverance, and being set free from the bondage of sin and death. And so that doesn't give you the mechanics of it, but it gives you kind of a model for how we kind of at least begin to try and ask better questions about the New Testament's use of language. So I don't know if that helps, but so in a nutshell, Christus Victor plus ransom theory is kind of where I tend to end up. I answered the question that BDS kind of put in there at the second. So uh, a lot of times, like, I think I kind of even heard this in church today, like the gospel is presented as uh, we're sinful. Uh, we deserve God's wrath. Jesus died for our sins. And because of Jesus, Jesus, because of God, Jesus' righteousness, um, when we put our faith in him, that righteousness is in the sense like imputed onto us. So like right. with your with your view of the atonement, would you like kind of like disagree with that like very traditional message of like what the gospel is, at least in like evangelical churches? Yeah, I would. Not because uh, my my kind of thought process is if if if, if penal substitution or double or imputation or even double imputation are taught in scripture, then I affirm them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm that kind of guy. Like if that's what the text says, then I go where the text leads me or I try to do as best as I can to go where the text leads me. Um, the problem is I don't see imputation or double imputation uh, taught in scripture. What you see in scripture is when it, and the gospel is not that Christ died for your sins, at least in the sense of presenting an atonement model. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gospel is Jesus is the resurrected Lord of all of creation. And that includes his death. You know, you have to be resurrected. You, you have to die in order to be resurrected. That's kind of Paul's whole point. But you don't have any conversation to have without a resurrection. You know, right. You know, if, if Jesus was killed and laid, you know, is still in the ground, then, um, uh, you don't have an atonement to talk about, you know, you don't have anything to talk about. You don't have a new Testament, you know, without the resurrection, you don't have anything to talk about. And so the resurrection is the gospel, not that, not the specific atonement model for whom or how all that works kind of thing. Um, the, the two texts or the one text, I think you could interpret, and I, I don't say the text teaches, but I'm saying you could interpret it this way is the second Corinthians, uh, five 21, where, uh, uh, he who didn't know sin be, uh, was made or presented or established, depending on how you translate the verb, as sin for us or as a sin offering for us. And that, of course, brings up a whole host of Christological questions, because do we really believe Jesus was made sin? That contradicts Chalcedonian Christology and ba- everyone's view of Christology is Jesus was not sinful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also brings in the issue of if God is making Jesus sin, as in terms of imputing to us, then how does that work with the Trinity? How does that work with all these other questions? I'm not saying there's not answers to it, but what I think is going on is Jesus uh, as human represents all of humanity. That's called representative theology or representative uh, atonement. Jesus represents all of humanity as the human one, as the quote, son of man. And the death he dies is for the sake of all of humankind because he represents all of us. He is kind of, we, I don't like the language of a federal head. I think that's a, it's a really terrible phrase, but he, um, he is very, he, he, well, here we go. He's as he is the image of God. So too, we are in his image. We can there's that kind of mirroring element. So Jesus represents for us what, uh, God requires of us and what God is. And so, uh, and I think BDS pointed this out, uh, participation as models, 
Um, uh, uh, and I think that's absolutely right. Atonement and participation or the Christian life, maybe if we want to be a little more general, uh, are inextricably linked in my mind. You can't, uh, and then that's kind of the, the issue of people like to take justification and sanctification, you know, and put them in separate spots. I'm like, no, there's, I'm not collapsing the two into one, but they are linked. If Christ died for your sins or because of your sins, however we translate that, then that impacts everything about how you live and what you do with your life as the one who's been set free. So I don't know if that quite answers your question, but I'm trying to kind of give a big picture without getting lost in the weeds. And it feels like yeah. I got lost in the weeds. <laughs> well, I mean, there. there's, there's a lot of things to talk about here. The atonement is not just like the super uh, simple question, I feel like. But uh, what does it mean to you like to believe in Jesus? Like, you know, John 3, 16 mm-hmm. is famous, like for God's love, the world, mm-hmm. whoever believes in him shall not perish. Or like all through the Old Testament, no, not the, Old, the New Testament is talking about believing in Jesus, believing in Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people will equate that with like some sort of like penal substitutionary atonement like that's the purpose of believing in jesus like what does it mean to you and all throughout the gospels and the new testament we're talking about believing in jesus that's a really good question yeah and i want to make it clear if that's what someone believes right if someone genuinely believes that i'm not here to take that away from them i'm not that kind of person if if it doesn't impinge on the nicene creed or any of the you know early christian creeds that unify us then believe what you want believe with conviction i don't have a problem with that i'm not i'm never, i'm a baptist i don't tell people how to you know, I, I don't do that sort of stuff you know a wesleyan baptist very much a wesleyan baptist but um i think you know the language of faith or pistis uh in greek or or pistuo uh, verbal cognates and stuff like that um believing in jesus's name essentially you would say one, it's trust. You're trusting that Jesus is who Jesus said he was. And of course, Jesus is vindicated by the Father by his resurrection. So we circle back to resurrection as kind of the, the vindicative model for how we think of God. Yeah. And also tells us about the character of God, because God could have just left Jesus in the ground and been like, well, I think I'll, I'll be cool as a, a, a binitarian, you know. But no, he, he raised him back from the dead, you know. Um, Faith in Jesus's name, especially in John, is essentially belief, trusting in the fact that Jesus is who Jesus said he was. And believing in his name is a sign of honor. It's a sign of royalty. You know, the name of Caesar and the name of all these other figures, you know, uh, believing that Jesus, believing in the name of Jesus means trusting who Jesus is, but also reorientating your entire life to live under that reign of kingship or the kingship of Christ. And that's kind of why we say when we say Jesus is Lord, that's not something we confess on Sunday for 30 minutes and then go home and live like like pagans, you know, or live like Caesar's fine or leave, you know, all those sorts of things. Living as Jesus, as if Jesus is Lord means Jesus is Lord of all, meaning your life. So it impacts who you vote for, what you eat, how you treat people, what you look on the Internet and so on and so forth. And I think trusting in Jesus, believing in Jesus, affirming Jesus's claims of who he is, is our way of participating and in living into that model of of the Christian life. And it's, it's the life, the life that Jesus lived is the life that we're called to live because Mm -hmm. if Jesus died to self, died for all of us, then we're called to die to self and be buried in Christ and immersed in Christ. And then we'll too be raised on the final day of glory. Mm. Yeah. It's a really thought out, well thought out answer. Uh, One thing I kind of want to dive into here a little bit more before we go into some more maybe specific things regarding the atonement is like, uh, obviously you you believe in conditionalism. uh, So Mm -hmm. if you're listening, you don't know if there's annihilationism kind of. Um, So like how, what does it mean for someone? Like how does someone avoid like annihilation? Like in your sense, because a lot of people would base it just kind of like on like penal substitutionary atonement. Like I know Chris Mm -hmm. Date, I believe still, Holds the PSA and he's your fellow annihilationist. Like to you, like when you figure out, like uh, what does it mean to be saved? You talked about that just a little bit, um, but like mm. h- 
what's going on here? Because I think it's an interesting, like, almost like a little bit murkier, but not like, you know, crazy, but yeah, like, yeah. what's going on here? Yeah. And so uh, if we if we go big picture, right, 30,000 feet, and we think about it, what happened in the garden? Adam and Eve sinned, they fell, and what did they lose? God cut off them, cut them off from the tree of life, which you would say the phrase would be, they weren't immortal, but they were immortable. They were, by participating in that tree, in the tree of life, you know, in the garden, they would continue into that immortal kind of life, right? Mm -hmm. But by being cut off because of sin and because of all the stuff, they are cast out from the garden. And so that whole storyline kind of comes back into the idea of the incarnation uh, and in the resurrection. And the whole point is death as a carnivorous, corrosive, horrific force that has agency in God's world. Uh, you can't quite, it's like calling it the devil he or death he. It's more like you want to call them an it, you know, because they're not personal, at least in the sense of like Jesus is personal, you know. But conditionalism plays into it because it sees death or uh, cessation of life and all those sorts of things, however you want to parse it. I try not to metaphysicalize it, but an ordinary death. It sees that as a result of sin, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us that death is not the final thing to be worried about. And it tells us, uh, if we want to be cheeky about it, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the final enemy to be destroyed or annihilated is not eternal conscious torment or sin or any of those things, although the sin is a horrific enemy of God. It's death, and it's a capital D, death. The final enemy of or the final hostile force in God's creation after all the principalities and powers and sovereignties and lords and that are destroyed. Death is the final thing that's utterly just annihilated and destroyed and removed from all of creation. Mm -hmm. And so the call, at least in how I see it is it's not a call to escape hell and, you know, fire insurance and all of that. It's no, you're called to live in the best sense of that word live for the sake of, of what Christ has called us to be. And that's basic John three sixteen. It's, it's, you know, Romans three twenty you know, six twenty three. the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And I mean that in the sense of death is the opposite of life. And that's in oh. the fact that Christ died tells us that Christ took the wages of sin seriously, but also lived into it as our representative. And as Hebrews talks about was like us in every way. Christ knows the sting and tragedy and terror of death. But even then, for those who believe in Christ's name, there's there's hope. There's there's no uh there's uh there's grace at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, thank you. Uh so with um your views on the atonement, obviously you said before you kind of lean towards Christus Victor with a little side of ransom theory, if you could say. But like, um, have your views changed over time regarding the atonement? I'm sure they probably have. Like, what's your kind of like journey look like with like what you believe regarding the atonement? Yeah, um, I, I would, it, it's hard to say because you're raised with certain models or assumptions or kind of mm -hmm. ideas of how God works. And that's, that's not bad at all. I mean, we're all de indebted to history and the, and the, our fathers and mothers in the faith and stuff like that. If we, if we were raised in the church and a Christian family, just to assume that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I believed when Christ died for my sins, in some sense, he bore the wrath of God. I never thought about what that meant. And I still don't quite know what that means. I mean, I know what people mean when they say it. Um, but looking at it in Greek and kind of trying to parse it a little bit, it's a little more ambiguous, you know. Um, but the way I see it, I always believe that if whatever we're talking about the death of Jesus, the problem is we focus so much on the death, we miss the most important thing. And that is, of course, his resurrection. Mm. And I think atonement theology 
tends to be death-centric. And I don't think that's wrong because you have to deal with the death of Jesus and interpret it. But that interpretation must be seen through the lens of resurrection. And so I think for me, becoming, a, I wouldn't say a conditionalist or anything else like that, but kind of taking a step back and looking at all of it, for me, I really tried to I really tried to look at things through the prism of God raising Jesus from the dead. And if that claim is true, then I need to rethink what death means. I need to rethink what it means that Jesus died. I need to rethink um, what that death does, you know, and try to avoid the mechanistic, you know, oh, well, because it's this, 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 and this, you know, God's honor, God's wrath. And I'm like, well, I don't, you don't see wrath in a lot of these texts, you know, the, the death of Jesus texts. Um, and so it's one of those trying, uh, so I always kind of held to a PSA model just by, by inheritance. And then once I started realizing Paul's vision of, of Christ was that G, that God raised Jesus from the dead, then I tried to re rethink things in light of that paradigm. And at that point, I just haven't, uh, I haven't, I haven't looked back. And that's not to say I reject penal substitution out of hand. I, I, I don't have a moral aversion to it or anything mm -hmm. like that. I just, um, I just don't see it as the best model for explaining everything. And I, and because essentially uh, you and I, you know, feel free to push back on this, of course, but mm -hmm. PSA is more of a, uh, it's an interpersonal individual and God relationship It's trying to figure out that God human relationship or individual mm -hmm. and God. And that's not necessarily uh, wrong, but it doesn't answer the question of the, of the of evil in the world, where atonement theories or uh, atonement models or atonement language has that. It doesn't have a vision of the cosmic, you know, kind of the cosmic order. It doesn't have a view of creation. It doesn't have a view. Uh, so you can kind of see where it is so limited in what it's seeking to do that I kind of look at PSA as if it's true, it only answers a, a very small amount of what the actual quote problem is or what the solution is, you know? Mm. And so that's not to say it's false It's say, if it is not true, then it's not true. But if it is true, it's, it only deals with the individual before God and her standing. And I think that's just a very non new Testament way of conceiving of things because God does deal with individuals, but within a corporate body. So corporateness or, or personal groups and stuff like that. So I don't know what you think about that, but that's kind of how I see um, that's kind of that was a big question that I kind of caused me to really rethink my conception of atonement. Mm. No, I think that's a really uh, well thought out answer. I mean, my personal views, I'm kind of like not sure. Obviously, I like kind of, you know, you grow up in most evangelical households, you assume PSA is true. Um, that's kind of where I've come. And at this point, I'm just like, I don't really know. I just want to go with what the Bible says. And mm -hmm. we're just kind of seeing where it goes. But uh, so you talked a little bit about like why you reject PSA and especially we've been talking about the New Testament but I'm curious your thoughts about the Old Testament because I think there's a couple of things that people will really point to that they'd say support PSA uh, you'd have the sacrificial set the sacrificial setup you'll see in the Old Testament where it's like mm -hmm. see God wanted them to have some sort of to atone for their sins and Jesus is supposed to be like the ultimate atonement in a sense um yeah. in terms of a substitution and then second with like things like Isaiah 53 which seems to be a very vivid picture that uh, I know Dr. William Lane Craig brought up is like a very vivid picture of what the atonement is supposed to be so I know your specialization is in the New Testament but like, what do you think about like the arguments from the Old Testament for penis substitutionary atonement yeah uh, I, I think I don't think the uh, the arguments from Leviticus uh, I think it's 16 through 18 are particularly helpful uh, I, I think they're very limited in what they're intending to do and there's also numerous issues with, uh, for example, um, how we conceive of. So basically, the, the problem I see with a lot of 
atonement models in say Leviticus is the sense in which you have uh, one, an assumption of, of wrath being involved in the equation. And wrath is, I would argue, probably the central defining component of penal substitutionary atonement. And the problem is wrath doesn't really seem to be an issue in these, in at least the Levitical kind of sacrificial system. It's about sin and purity and all those sorts of conceptions. And uh, there are there are Old Testament scholars who've made that point. And so I'm pleading a little bit of ignorance on that part. But what I see there is by and large, it is uh, one, it's uh, atonement costs something, or or we would say the, the blood offering or the sin offering or the guilt offering. Um, but uh, none of them present us necessarily with a model for how the New Testament writers conceive of it. Now, I'm not saying that they're not Jews and they don't have that kind of mentality in mind. I get that. And I think that's true. The problem is when we kind of look at the death of a lamb, right? You know, the Paschal lamb or the Passover lamb or all these sorts of things. We automatically assume substitution plus wrath, i.e. penal substitution. And you can have substitution without the uh, implicit notion of wrath involved, specifically God's wrath directed at an object. Um, because in a lot of sense, and if we think about it, God is the one ultimately providing atonement in the Levitical laws because he's telling people this is how it's supposed to be. But we even know that it's not always supposed to be that because there was no atonement made in the garden, you know. And so uh, if we look back to Eden as kind of our primary model, uh, which is where we're going, you know, if we read the book of Revelation, the whole point is we're going back to kind of shalom and new creation and new heavens and new earth. We need to think of atonement in Leviticus 16 as a temporary measure that ultimately uh, gives people a sense in which they can take care of their sins, uh, but also they can remind themselves, one, of memorial, you know, so it's a symbolic power of things, but also, two, that there is a cost to sin. Sin has a corrosive nature. And I think you can have all of that without the, the wrath or penal substitutionary kind of assumptions therein. So if I if you if I say to, if I say Jesus died for my sins, that can mean numerous things in English. Could mean Jesus died because of my sins. It could mean Jesus died for my sins in the same way that, you know, uh he he took a pen from me, you know. So there's numerous linguistic kind of issues involved with that. And the Hebrew of course is a little more complex, but at the end of the day, the sacrificial system in Leviticus is more centered on ritual purity than it is with we might say expunging sin from myself and making me clean, you know, kind of thing. They didn't really have that sort of existential guilt. And it's not to say they didn't have guilt, but we kind of existentialize things a little bit. So that's Leviticus. And that's not the full story. John Goldingay and other scholars have really argued for that sort of stuff. And I'm persuaded that they're right, but I'm not like hundred percent that they're right. I, I, and that, that's my way of saying, I see where people are coming from with Leviticus and Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Um, I don't find the interpretation compelling, but I at least see where people are coming from. The problem with Isaiah 53 are numerous issues in translation. And so I, I can speak a little bit to that. Not a ton. I, I wish I could speak more. Um, there are issues as it relates to, well, one, uh, just coherence in Old Testament theology, right? So you have the uh, language of, I believe it's... Um, Isaiah 53, verse 10, something along the lines of the Lord wanted or willed to crush, right? Uh, the Lord, uh, that kind of willing you know, cr to crush him, the yeah. servant. And there's also debate about who the servant is. Is this Israel? Is this an eschatological figure? Is this a present figure? And that needs to be debated before we even 
just kind of go, oh, well, it's just clearly this, you know, so there's interpretive issues there. Um, but that word for will or want or desire is, is a positive word because we look at Ezekiel, for example, and it says, I, I paraphrase, you know, God doesn't will or want the desire of the, or the, the death of the wicked. He doesn't take delight in that. And so it's weird to say, and weird doesn't mean false, but weird just how is this coherent? It's weird to say God doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but he does desire the the death of the righteous. You know, it's so it's just kind of one of those like it it brings up questions, you know. Um, and you know, uh, he had done no violence and all those sorts of things. Um, there's also the question of of uh, his life being offered as a sin offering can also mean something like restitution, or um, or, or or kind of a gift offering kind of thing. Um, but a lot of it, I see. The issue I see with Isaiah 53 is how the New Testament utilizes that kind of would say story, but, and this is the new Testament person to me coming out. So I apologize is mm -hmm. while people do see echoes of Isaiah, sorry, most of my professors in old Testament were British. So they say Isaiah, mm -hmm. uh, Isaiah, Isaiah, uh, there's a debate about the extent in which there are literary echoes of Isaiah in the new Testament, Isaiah 53. Uh, and that's something that Morna Hooker and others have argued that the, and I don't know if I buy this completely, uh, but she says Isaiah 53 is not the illusions in the New Testament to Isaiah 53 aren't illusions at all. Like I, the, the writers don't have Isaiah, that Isaiah story in mind, which I don't really buy. I think there's some evidence to support it, but I, I don't want to overplay it because I think a lot of people do. So at the end of the day, Isaiah 53, I think, um, might prefigure Jesus. Um, but all, even then you have the issues of, you know, um, being despised and all this sort of stuff. So you can see where people are coming from with Isaiah 53. The only issue is I don't see how Isaiah 53 in the New Testament gets unpacked in the same way that people do do with Isaiah 53. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it's like you could say, for example, Isaiah 53 right here. You know, this is Isaiah 53. It's like, okay, yeah, I can see that that's Isaiah 53. But what gets written in the New Testament doesn't look like this color, doesn't look like this pen. And so that makes me go, okay, either there's an issue in transmission from one to the other, you know, whether you view Isaiah 53 as prophecy or fulfillment or what, you know, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, or you go, Isaiah, this is not a blue pen because the pen in reality is green and we are thinking in the wrong color when we're painting and writing in the New Testament. So I don't know if that's helpful to people, um, but at least trying to, to get a sense of the difficulty of just pick basically what I, what I'm trying to say is it, you can't just pick up your Bible and be like, Oh, uh, this proves all the stuff I was looking for. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, a, a guy who actually, now that I have it, this book, let's see, atonement, justice, and peace by, uh, Darren Schneider, Belusek. Uh, the first half of the book is great. He actually, he argues exegetically against penal substitution. The second half of the book is basically about, um, nonviolence and justice, which is interesting, but it's also makes the book like twice as long. But he argues very strongly that uh, the servant in Isaiah represents the people, that uh, the servant in Isaiah suffers because of the people, but the servant in Isaiah is not a penal substitute for the people. And I think his argument, uh, there are nuances within that, but I think he makes a good case while taking Isaiah 53 seriously. So I don't know if that helps um, I wish I could say, I, I wish I knew the Old Testament better. It's one of those things that I'm I'm very aware of my limitation on that. So that's kind of how I see Isaiah 53 functioning. 
uh, and all the issues they're in. So there's a lot more to be done on that stuff, on that, uh, on that material as well. And I would encourage people to go and study it. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Uh, we'll go to one more question here because I know we're running out of time. Uh, very interesting question. Um, why did Jesus die? Like in your view, like why did Jesus have to die, or why did Jesus even die in the first place? Like I feel like that's a very good like kind of like conclusion to wrap this up. So like when someone asks yeah. you, Nick, what did Jesus? Why did Jesus have to die or die? What do you say? Well, the historical answer is Jesus died because the Romans crucified him. <laughs> you know, uh, but. Why did Jesus die? Uh, you sent me this question and I've been chewing on it like ever since. It's such a good question. My, and this is where I wish I was more skilled in systematic theology and philosophy. What I think the New Testament says to that is without a death, it is really difficult to see the full extent of what it means to be human. And what I mean by that is dying an accursed death on an accursed cross and an accursed land under, under an oppressed, oppressive regime, Rome, dying the death of, his, of an insurgent. Uh, we called Jesus a crucified criminal. He was called an insurgent, uh, which identifies him as, uh, as a, a mercenary in some sense. Um, Jesus's death tells us the full extent of how horrific humanity can be. And we don't need that necessarily to know things because we can look at the Holocaust. We can look at genocide. We can look at concentration camps and people, you know, all the, we can look at war and mass violence, you know, mm -hmm. but seeing an innocent man tortured and killed and not only tortured and killed but dishonored like his the fact that jesus is we we like to cover jesus up when we show him on a cross it's, he probably was naked when he's up there like let's be honest mm -hmm. and going through the, just the most and james cone had this really good quote and I, i'm gonna butcher it but he basically says the the crucifixion of jesus was a first century lynching and that phrase is meant to make the bile in your throat rise like we understand at least to some extent the horrific social implications of a lynching and it's meant to show us how degrading and horrific it is and it, it the, there's a reason the new testament authors don't spend a lot of time on the torture of jesus they basically he was crucified and they leave it at that because we all know what that means or they know what that means they don't have to explain it and i think that jesus's death shows us the depths of the human heart and the human capacity for sin evil and all of that but without a death there is no resurrection and if death is God's final enemy, death is the thing that is saturated God's cosmos and is destroying everything as, as, a, as a renegade agent, then Jesus's death shows us, one, how human he was, and his resurrection tells us how good God is. It's not just a matter of God raised Jesus from the dead. It's no, the character of God is revealed not in the death of Jesus, but in the resurrection of Jesus. And the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead tells us that God is loving and that God doesn't abandon us to the grave. Mm. And I think for, for us, that death, it could have been done many different ways, but the fact that he want, Jesus was like us in every way, sinful or not sinful, um, suffering the impacts of sin. And it's one thing to say too, and I got in trouble for this, but I don't think it was actually a bad statement. Is It's one thing to know what something is. It's another thing to experience it. And I mean, uh, it's like, you can think of, you know, a terrible example, but you can think about sex all the time, but until you experience it, 
it's completely a completely different thing, you know, or, you know, you think about you know, those sorts of things. It's like, it's one thing to know, but it's another thing to actually know. And in Jesus's case, in God's case, it's one thing to know what death is like because God and God on high sees it and witnesses it. It's another thing to be subjected to it and all that sort of stuff. And I think the death of Jesus gives us a way of looking not only at, uh, 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 of the payment of sin or the cost of sin, but also how God responds to sin. He perseveres and he breaks the chains and he resurrects those who are allegiant to him as Jesus was. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, we'll squeeze one question really quickly here um, sure. from Susan Slamarine. She says, uh, Jesus had to die to show that he actually defeated death. Do you agree, Nick? Um, in some sense, I would say Jesus died and was raised to show that he actually defeated death. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, death won. And it wasn't until death, or that Jesus was raised from the dead, that death finally knew it was lost. And that's when the, the, the back of the devil, the back of Satan, the back of the empires on sin and evil and death was broken. And it, we might say that's when the, if we all know C.S. Lewis as the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that was the day that the stone tablet cracked. Mm. Awesome. Great book. Oh, well, Nick, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it, man. Um, encourage everyone to follow Nick down below. There's links down below. You can follow Nick. If you're new to here in Apologetics, I encourage you to subscribe. Uh, you can leave a rating. You listen to a podcast. Appreciate all your support. And if you enjoy the show, you can support. Go show. become a patron for Zach. Go yeah, become a patron, patron for Zach. Yeah, patron.com. Apologetics for like 70% funded. So appreciate everyone's support. Um, Nick, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, man. Absolutely, brother. Sorry for the short uh, short notice on everything, but this has hey, been great. It's all good. You're a busy man. You're a very busy man. So appreciate your time.